All right, Mackenzie. Okay, Lamar. If you had to create a movie title that was an adjective followed by a number, a la The Hateful Eight, uh, Magnificent Seven, you got Crazy 88, not a movie title, but in another Tarantino film. Sure. What would your movie title be? Okay. Well, this is going to seem predictable because my lucky number is 11, but uh, I think I'm going to go Electric 11. The Electric Eleven. The Electric Eleven. What, That's got to be good, right? Are they superheroes in your mind? I or feel what like makes it's got to be. Yeah, something superhero-y vibe. Okay, cool. I'm gonna go with the the horny forty-two. <laughs> I feel like that is ripe for just some great quality content in there. I don't know what the rating. We might need to get that past the the MPAA, but I think we're okay. I feel like you'd get through. You'd get through. <laughs> Well, hello, folks. Welcome back to We Drink and We Watch Things. I'm Mackenzie. I'm Lamar. Thanks for coming back after the first couple rounds of our Tarantino Vember TMTM trademarked, we think, by Lamar. Uh, <laughs> or at least we hope. Definitely put it on the post that it's trademarked. Hope it's fine. It's ours. No one it's ours touched now. that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we're on to our third one today. But before we get going, we wanted to talk a little bit about our beverages. Our tasty, tasty beverage today. So as always, we're going to spoil the shit out of this film. So mm-hmm. if you haven't seen it, go watch it. But those of you who have seen The Hateful Eight will know that pretty much all they drink in this damn movie is coffee and alcohol. No one, no yeah. one's trying to hydrate at all. No. no. I think that, you know, spoiler, but if they're not all dead by the end of this, they would have been dead of dehydration anyway. For That's sure. the path they were all going down. Listen, they're just trying to stay warm. And there are two options for that in yeah. this film, and that is coffee and booze. So in honor of that, I made you my famous boozy coffee. And it which, is delicious. Again, is aptly named. Has made an appearance on the pod before, but I couldn't not for this one. It was just too relevant. But I also get to show off, and this will will appear on the socials, couple entries from my mug collection, which, Mm -hmm. for those of you who don't know, is very, very large. So what's yours? So mine, uh, again, reference to Hateful Eight here, mine says Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum, established 2005. Did you actually go here and get this souvenir? No, it's actually a gift. Somebody got you a souvenir from a library? (laughs) Listen, I'm a nerd, so people who go to libraries get me gifts from the library. I'm not not judging whichever friend or family member this was, but I'm kind (laughs) of judging. But you're judging a little. And mine, mine's a little bit of a deeper cut, but I think it works. It's it's tangentially related yeah. in that it is a I'm your Huckleberry mug. Mm-hmm. Nice little tombstone reference there. Mm-hmm. Got some, some actor crossover in this film we're going to discuss today. There is, there is. But anyway, cheers to that. Yeah, cheers. Uh, speaking of Tarantino November, and this being the third entry, Hateful Eight, where are we sitting with that audience poll for number four, Lamar? Poll currently. We're down to the finals. It is down to Kill Bill Volume 1 mm-hmm. versus Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. And both fantastic. Would love to talk about either one of those. What would you want to do? We're going to do whatever the poll says, but of the two, which one would you want to talk about more? Because I'm an honest man, I'm going to say that as soon as I posted the poll, I went to my personal Instagram account and voted for Reservoir Dogs. So did I. So, Same exact thing. It's it's not that I Hey, our love... votes count too. Yeah, yeah, we get a vote. You get the people running for president get to vote for themselves. It's American democracy. So I guess maybe because we've done 
one older Tarantino film and two newer ones from the past decade or so, it made sense to me to let's go back and do the first one. Yeah, I just haven't actually seen Reservoir Dogs in a hot minute. I kind of wanted an excuse to rewatch it anyway. And if we did volume two of Kill Bill, I personally am like that OCD person. I was going to have to watch two. Yeah. And it was going to create more work for me. So this isn't going to help anything, but I hope y'all voted for Reservoir Dogs. (laughs) (laughs) And I will say, I really do love Kill Bill as well. I thought if I want to play devil's advocate here, if Kill Bill were to win, it would be cool to discuss that back to back with Hateful Eight because you have strong female characters in both of those Mm -hmm. films, which you don't get in a lot of Tarantino, unfortunately. That's true. That's true. No great point. Okay, well, again, TBD, we'll let you know what that poll is. Thanks for everyone who voted. Yeah. Also, thank you for everyone who commented, shared, or and or made artwork of us this last <laughs> week. We love and appreciate your support. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the robots are making the artwork, but somebody's got to put those inputs in there. So in. Hey, that, thank you, at Pembertonia. At Pembertonia. Thank you so much. Let's not start the AI art debate. I don't want to get yelled <laughs> at. Um, but thank you for, uh, yeah, putting in the inputs. I don't know. Whatever you yes. call it. But yeah, so let's dig in to the Hateful Eight. What we're going to do today is going to be slightly different format really this is going to shake up a little every week so get used to it this is a fairly linear story lamar and i were talking about this off mic that you know unlike some of the others that kind of bounced around or hard to follow conceptually this is pretty easy to follow i think yeah quite linear sort of start to finish plot line we get one chapter you know it is still split into chapters like a Mm -hmm. lot of tarantino films but we get one chapter that is predominantly a flashback and we get a couple cutaways but yeah for the most part this from front to back is one linear story which you don't get a lot so we thought it made sense today to actually sort of work our way through the plot and discuss the things that stand out to us as we go yeah so I mean starting there actually I I would be curious do you think because this is it does take a slightly different format than other Mm -hmm. Tarantino films do you think that that impacted how it was received like it wasn't super complicated it was kind of linear making it was it maybe not as engaging to people or were people not as on edge i don't know because this is one of the the not as well received tarantino films right so i'm just curious do you think the linearity has an impact at all I personally wouldn't judge it based on the linearity. I've got my own theory. So this is, as Mackenzie said, depending on which website you're going to, if we're going by the, the traditional, you know, Rotten Tomato scores, this is the second worst reviewed film of his. Granted, it's it's like 70% or something like that. So it's still not right. a bad film by those standards, but it's only ahead of Death Proof in sort of its its audience and critic scores. On IMDb, it's more middle of the pack, but still, I feel like if you Google Hateful Eight reviews, you get a lot of negatives And my theory isn't due to the linearity. I feel like the fact that this is the longest Tarantino film at Mm -hmm. two hours and 50 odd minutes or 48 minutes. If you were bored at any point, you're probably bored for a lot of this because this might be the slowest of slow burns in all of his films, in my opinion. What do you think? I do think it moves slowly, but I actually had a note in here somewhere of just a moment where it was like midway, probably where other people would be getting bored, honestly where I was just, I literally wrote a note of, oh my God, the writing. Yeah. Like, I just love how well-written it is. Mm -hmm. It it reminds me so much of kind of your classic films that did not, were not able to rely on action and adventure and effects and what have you to get you through the plot. It had to be, you know, really strong dialogue, really strong writing and performances, of course. And those I just love. I love that when something is kind of really witty or lots of nuance or subtle references or things like that. And I just think that really comes through in the script for me throughout. So I can see why if maybe you 
are not interested in or don't know the references that mm-hmm. are said throughout that you could get bored or feel like it moves slowly. I didn't feel like, I mean, I know that it's long, but the most aware of how long it was that I was, was when I would like pause it briefly to take a note mm-hmm. and I would see, oh, okay, we got another an hour, an hour and 45 left or whatever. Yeah. But it wasn't in the moment watching it that I was like, this is so long. Right. Did you, did you have that experience? I think the first time through, and I believe I've said this on a previous, this is probably the most divisive of the Tarantino films. I think the reason is because going into it, people were expecting a Western. But once you get into the film, you see that it's sort of a mystery of who here can be trusted, mm-hmm. who here is not who they say they are. And that's sort of the first 90 minutes or so, two yeah. hours of the film. When the reveal comes... It wasn't something anybody could have predicted. And I feel like when you, you know, for me personally, if I'm reading or watching a mystery, I like to be able to go back and look at the clues of how I could have figured this out. I don't think you could do that with this movie. Not to say that on rewatch, it's not better. Right, right. Yeah, I do think, so I'm kind of torn about some of that. I do think, not of course the exact circumstances are predictable, but I think you, to your point, you know something mysterious is happening. You know there's some kind of, Uh, game afoot as it were I I do think that the mystery of it all yes keeps it engaging for me to to that whole first half of the film I think you're not at least as to me you're not bored throughout that period either so one of the big the big things that I love about Tarantino is even just his openings I didn't want to forget to mention that when when Hateful Eight opens up it just gives you this like classic title card this classic western look to it which as we know is a hallmark of Tarantino's work he loves westerns and he really I think does them justice and he does it really well here especially Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah a lot of his films you know pay homage to we've said it before he's a huge cinephile so depending on what style of film he's making, he's making a ton of references. I personally have not seen a ton of Westerns, so I can't appreciate a lot of what's going on in here. So if at any point today I say that something feels original or awesome and somebody's like, that's just paying homage to this, I apologize. Don't worry. I'm a big Western fan. Cool. My dad and I watched all the Westerns and all the days. But yeah, but talking about slow, I will say the one thing that gets old real quick is that crucifix shot. Okay. That goes the very on beginning. At the very beginning okay. for twelve years. And I like my immediate <laughs> reaction was listen, I grew up Catholic. I saw this crucifix every Sunday for eighteen years. I'm all good. Can we can we wrap it up, Buttercup? I think that the purpose behind that and other shots, we see multiple shots like that of them making their way to Minnie's haberdashery and these outdoor shots of just the the desolation and how Mm -hmm. isolated all these characters are. So I think that's what that's meant to indicate, but it does go on a little long. For sure, for sure. I think it's, yeah, to your point, just really highlighting the landscape that we're in. Absolutely. I also liked on the title card that it calls out the Hateful Eight, mm-hmm. his eighth film. Yes. Get it? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh. Numbers. We see you, Quentin. We see you with I your numbers. <laughs> Can I throw one more thing out that I think also lends itself to a bit of divisiveness? Sure. And this might be controversial, so I apologize if you love this film, but I think this is the first Quentin film where, you know, they always say in cinema, show don't tell, right? Mm-hmm. Because this is so linear and there are no, there's only the one flashback chapter, most of the backstory on these characters we're getting is just driven by dialogue. I wouldn't go as far as to say it's exposition because I think it's done in an organic way, mm-hmm. but I think that might also lend it of just, 
okay, we're hearing this story about who Chris Mannix is. We're hearing this story mm. about who Major Warren is before they got to this point, as opposed to showing us. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's breaking, quote unquote, breaking the rule of the show don't tell rule. But I think it's intentional in that Quentin Tarantino is obviously trying to keep us in as few locales as possible. Yes. So in order to show who Chris Mannix is or who John Ruth the Hangman is, you would have to really flash out to a completely different scene and a completely different environment to show their story um, in, a, in really a historical accuracy that really tells you who they are. And I think you're introducing a bunch more locales, a bunch, not stories, but, but these little vignettes yeah. that one, I don't know that you had time for. And because, again, we have some serious length here. And two, that I think are captured well in with the intent of keeping it isolated, with the intent of keeping you feeling a little claustrophobic throughout. That That is an excellent call out because the only real cutaway, aside from the flashback, which is in the same one of the same locations we've already seen. Right. The only other cutaway is to another white snow desolate setting in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you're right. They're, they want to cut down, limit the amount of locations in this. And the other thing that I suppose I was thinking of after I posed that question was maybe it's to do with identity of the whole point of this movie is we don't know which of these men are who they say they are. Mm -hmm. And the same is true in a way, and we'll get into it, for who I would consider the good guys, I guess, in this yeah. story. Of, guys, question mark. Is Chris Mannix really going to be the sheriff of, yeah. of Red Rock? Does Major Marcus Warren actually have a letter with Abraham Lincoln? So yeah, it's, yeah. maybe it's this crisis of like, what do you believe of what these people the say? We Sorry? want you. Yeah, we, we can't prove it. We we don't want you to have evidence one way or the other. We want you to question it the whole time. Yeah, that's an excellent point. So we don't know who on that original stagecoach we should trust. And then by the time we get to the cabin, we don't know what the hell's going on. Yeah. The other thing I want to point out, too, is I do think the crucifix is there. And then also, I think there's a few references, kind of vague references and in, in, uh, symbols, just religious symbols. But one that weirdly stood out to me, and I don't know if I actually did not look this up, but I meant to to see if this was intentional, is the white horse on the carriage. Didn't notice so this. it's a six hitch horse on the carriage and there's five brown horses and one white one. Okay. And if you know the Bible at all, or and or even l watch any westerns where this I've is heard of, I've heard of the Bible. You know, yes, you've heard of the Bible. Good job, good job. So proud. Uh, but in Revelation, they talk about how death came on a white horse, mm -hmm. on a pale horse. And so I thought it was interesting that on a six hitch, you have like a you have the wheel pair, you have the swing pair, and you have the lead pair on a six hitch mm -hmm. horse, and the white horse is on the lead pair, and this obviously precludes a bunch of death. Yeah. And so I just thought, is that intentional that this horse at death came in on a white horse um, and he's leading the carriage into this Minnie's haberdasher? But OK, that's a that's a cool call out. And yeah, we will we'll get to death count. But I think this might be the as far as percentage of survivors this <laughs> might be the lowest we talked about wise. Yeah. yeah, we talked about how Inglorious Bastards, only three of the main characters make it out. And I don't think anybody really makes it out of this. We I could, was just about to say, I was know. like, does anyone survive? Am I second guessing myself here? I don't think anybody survives. Yeah. And we could talk about, you know, Reservoir Dog maybe next week or next November of yeah. the potential that maybe one of them survive. But I think this one just factually has probably the least survivors of any Tarantino film. Yeah, I think so, for sure. So while well, speaking of, why don't we kick it off with chapter one? 
Yeah, and we're let's gonna go do through it. a bit in order. So chapter one was called Last Stage to Red Rock. For those of you who don't know what a stage is, stage coach. That's the coach. That's the carriage mm-hmm. that is taking them. And as we said, this is a really desolate environment. There's no one else out here except for Kurt Russell, aka John Ruth, the hangman, mm-hmm. and his prisoner, Daisy Domergue. So uh, let's talk about both of these characters and the yeah. actors portraying them, because mm-hmm. god damn, I, I want to give all the flowers and start with Jennifer Jason Lee yeah. because I think that she, this role is just incredible for yeah. her. Nominated for Best Supporting Actress mm-hmm. uh, uh, for an Oscar and uh, didn't win, but she won the Golden Globe for it, I think. I think. And it's not surprising. Like, I mean, she just fully commits to this role. And I think we've said that before of a couple of really powerhouse performances on in other movies is just, you know, when they just fully commit and they immerse themselves and you kind of lose the actor, you know, mm-hmm. you don't notice Jennifer Jason Lee anymore. This is just Daisy Domergue and she's a fucking crazy person. <laughs> D- despicable. Like despicable probably the person. worst, like meanest, most hateable character in the film. Oh, 100%. And we mentioned earlier, you know, still a powerful female performance, which you don't get in a lot of Tarantino, but you despise this they character, despise but she's still occasionally sympathetic. It's a lot of what we've talked about with Hans Landa and a few other yeah. Tarantino characters where it's like, this is a terrible, terrible person, right. but God damn it, do they make you laugh sometimes? They do. Well, I mean, she lost me from her first snot rocket. I'm not going to tell, I'm not going <laughs> to lie to you. So that was You're big on manners. Pretty. I am big on manners. I think it's gross. Uh, and it's not a lady thing, by the way. It's not like, oh, act like a lady. Fuck that. It's just, <laughs> ew. Like yeah. fundamentally, ew. I think... It is hard for me to sympathize with her. I think there are moments, less so I think than Hans Landa actually for me, because I feel like he had some really poignant moments where you're like, oh, you know, because you do, you kind of question his commitment to being the bad guy throughout that. Here, I think you don't really question her commitment to being the bad guy. No, she She wants to kill people. She wants to kill people. She wants to be a shithead. She is fully committed throughout, I think. So I don't, I have less sympathy for her in that way. The one I think, obvious call out that is i think a big part of the reception of this film is the constant abuse of her that was what i wanted to ask you about so what are your thoughts on that well i mean obviously abusing women is wrong let's just asterisk asterisk that i mean that's that's obvious so it is hard to watch i think the thing that stands out again is just she has like i said fully committed to being this just truly evil person Mm -hmm. and actually another character later who we'll get to in a minute says until they invent a trigger that a woman can't pull i i don't you know then then i'm gonna hang her you know and i think that's fair to say you know if we want equality in all things sometimes it's it's it can be you know the death penalty for example or punishment for your crimes or what have you she did all these things these horrible things for which she's going you know going to be punished and has she earned them yes and should she get out of them because she's a woman no yeah so i in never and based on everything you just said would never make light of abusing a woman i think in this case with her behavior and with her being this murderous thing and what we see her do yeah. later in the movie i'm content in the case of daisy domergu to say Equal rights, equal lefts. And in that way, she might be, is she chronologically the first 
feminist in the Tarantino verse. <laughs> like, you know, this is taking place. I don't remember in she Django if there was, but yeah, she might be the first feminist. So She's good for here you, to, Daisy to Domergue. fight for equality yeah. in all things, you know, including the right to get bitch slapped because she fucking earned it for sure. But at the same time, speaking to the other character we want you know to talk more about here is Kurt Russell's performance as yes. the hangman, as John Ruth, the hangman. Incredible. Number one, Kurt Russell is incredible. But he reminded me a lot here of... I felt like he kind of fell back into that tombstone-y, Wyatt Earp voice, like even the way he speaks throughout his cadence that he speaks in reminded me so much of that. And in the But he's much more abrasive and, and obviously abusive to her. But they get this strange camaraderie going mm-hmm. that I thought was really interesting to observe. It's like he's taking her to face justice. He knows she's probably going to die very, very likely to be hanged. She's guilty of all these things. But like, they kind of coordinate and collaborate and they eat meals together, like kind of comfortably, almost coupley, you know, it's, yeah. it's an interesting dynamic, I think. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of maybe not quite Stockholm, whatever the opposite of Stockholm syndrome right? is, where yeah. the, the, the captor actually starts to sympathize a little bit because he mm-hmm. does let her off the chain at some point and gives her a little bit of leeway, but then goes right back to sort of, you know, how he was judging her before. Is there a person in Hollywood who pulls off any style of facial hair better than Kurt Russell? No, absolutely not. I'm like, I'm looking through, I just image searched him at one point and was just like, dude, you've got him with the full gray beard in Guardians 2. You've got him with the stash in Tombstone. He's got to have facial hair of some kind. But even clean shaven, big trouble in Little China, handsome looking dude. Stubble in Escape from New York, handsome looking dude. He's just a fucking handsome guy. And he's got a great voice again. Like he's got this nice, it's like a little bit of a rasp to it. And he's doing a little bit of a John Wayne in this. Did you pick up on that at all? Well, that's what I mean. I think that's Mm -hmm. his Western voice. Yes. That's what he did in Tombstone. That's what he's doing here. And the growl, you know, he gets that growl a couple times. It's kind of that typical Kurt Russell. So we start with those two in the stagecoach, and then we come across Marquise Warren, Mm -hmm. uh, played by Samuel L. Jackson, who is in his sixth Tarantino movie. If I give any movie stats today about this sort of like count, it counts Kill Bill as two separate movies. So out of Mm -hmm. the 10, Mm -hmm. Sam Jackson has been in six of them. And I guess is it... Is it correct? Would you say that he, if you had to pick a main character in this, it's it's his character? I think he is the protagonist, yes. Mm-hmm. I think he's the protagonist, and I think that Daisy's the antagonist. Of course, especially at the end, that becomes very, very clear, but it's really down to them. But it's interesting how Chris Mannix becomes, you know, kind of his unexpected wingman at the end there. But we'll get there. Agreed. I think that when he first joins the story, those early stagecoach scenes are some of the most fun parts of the film for me. Because it does establish that sense of distrust and paranoia that we're going to get throughout the entire... It's like, why are these two men walking around in the middle of a blizzard when it just so happens that John Ruth is transporting this prisoner? Yeah, and... It's a valid question. I mean, he has what seems to be a good explanation. I mean, he's got like two or three bodies he's sitting got two there. Or three so yeah, bodies he's got... on him and a saddle. So you yeah. know, it's like he had a horse at one point. Mm-hmm. He's got the most credible story. Yes, but I think that Chris Mannix, however, like his his story is super questionable. He has no physical evidence of what he's been through. He has no evidence of having had a horse or why would you yes. be out in this weather? Yeah. There's no letter or anything he's willing to share, mm-hmm. you know? So he he's very, very questionable. So you kind of throughout the story change, I think, whether or not you believe him. I think that's intentional. 
Yeah, I think he's probably the biggest red herring of the film. And I mean, even by the end of it, you're not entirely sure if he was telling the truth the whole time. But I think he fucking commits. You want to believe him. You want to believe him. Because at that him. point, you sort of like him. Yeah. But because I think... Because he switched sides at the last minute, though, which I think is an indicator, too, though, of can you believe him? You know? That's Be- true. Because it's like you haven't trust You've trusted-ish some of what he said, and then he does this thing where he sides with a black man, which he has given every indicator that he would never do. Yes. But maybe he... Maybe, who knows? Maybe he's delusional and he wants to be the sheriff real bad. Yeah, I think the the scales of justice, I didn't take the time to do a lot of research. This wasn't something I was looking for, so probably not going to dig super deep into it right now. But I think the concept of justice in this, of individuals, you know, versus mob justice versus what we consider justice mm-hmm. in our judicial system is something that's questioned. So the fact that he switches sides there at the end, the, the reason he does it is because Dahmer Goo was basically going to betray him anyway. So he's doing it in a very selfish, for selfish reasons. It doesn't seem like he's making necessarily an honorable choice. He's just doing it out of spite, almost. Yeah, he doesn't believe her, really. And why would you? I mean, honestly. But I think, back to your point about the, the beginning, this chapter in the stage, you know, they have a very unique dynamic that changes as they go through and as they add people to yes. that dynamic. And he super stirs that pot right up until Marquise is like about to shoot him. Yeah. Gun in his face. And he's like, ooh, ooh, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to go to sleep right here. And you just see his like his whole face changes. And I think that's what makes it really hard to trust him because he was fully committed to like getting up in this guy's face. He's super sassy. Right. He's got that fucking head wag. Have you noticed? Oh my yeah. God. So he's really sassy and he's really daring in what he says until push comes to shove, right? Until his, his actual life is on the line. Yes. And then he's like, Oh, what? A little old me? I was never, <laughs> you know, he just backs way off and, and you're like, what a little bitch, yeah. you know? And, and he we goes have, straight to sleep. We have not said two key words so far in relation to Chris Mannix. And that's the man, the myth, the legend, Walton God. Walton fucking Goggins. Who is playing this character with this amount. You just did that Southern Belle accent. It's like he can go from that to this sort of threatening bravado in a way. And it's just because this actor is so great at playing that combination of Mm -hmm. deviousness and sass and comedy. Like it it all works. The sass. The sass Mm -hmm. on him. Yeah. And can we just talk about like these names? Walton Goggins is his actual name. And I because I Googled it. I was like, that's. Is that a stage name? Is this like a commitment to like a weird <laughs> stage name to get attention? No, that's his actual name. And it vibes. Yeah, it vibes with him as a, as a character, character actor. And yeah, he leans in. And I just love when he's out in front of the stagecoach trying to like make his case. Uh-huh. And he is like a desperate man. Yeah. But he can't help but fight. He can't help but be sassy. He Talking can't that help shit. but be ornery and talk shit. And he's like, again, he's just like head wagging. He's threatening their lives and he's going to yeah. die in the snow. But I mean, I guess that's the strongest leverage he has is, well, if I am who I say I am and you proceed and let me die, guess what's going to happen to you? So it is using sort of the only leverage he has. And we'll get into the flip side of that when we talk about the Lincoln letter later on in the story. So we covered chapter one and chapter two. Uh, In chapter two, we didn't we didn't mention, but that was called Son of a Gun. That was where Chris Mannix comes in. So we covered both of those. So now on to chapter three, Minnie's Haberdashery. Oh, boy. And this is where we're going to spend the last 90 minutes of the film, something like that. The majority of the film is yeah. spent here. Yeah, really the rest of it, which, I, again, to what we were saying earlier, I think is intentionally claustrophobic. Yeah. 
You know, you want to be isolated in this place and feel that isolation. And man, do they really make you feel it in the environment, mm-hmm. you know, in the, the how the blizzard is coming down, how they got to, you know, take care of the horses and yeah. water them and all, you know, just the pathway and setting the line from, mm-hmm. you know, the outhouse and, and the barn to the to the main uh, in the main house. And you really feel how under threat they are just from their external environment. Yes. And this place that's supposed to be safe for them immediately feels unsafe. Yeah, we're going to meet four additional characters when we get to Minnie's Haberdashery. And this is where a lot more of that suspicion comes into play. We know that some things are off. You're following Sam Jackson's character and he's pointing out some inconsistencies with how Mm -hmm. things should be. You see him sort of questioning Senior Bob and what Which also, Senior Bob. Yes, Senior Bob. Played by a Mexican, (laughs) so good on you, Quentin. Um, But yes, so he's sort of pushing a little bit on, oh, really? You're saying that Minnie's on the other side of the mountain? Okay, really? Sweet Dave went with her. Just And so we as the audience know, okay, something is up and the characters are just not all aware of it yet. Yeah, and I think that, I don't know about you, but I feel like Kurt Russell or, or the hangman is kind of distracted by what he has going on with Daisy Donahue. Yeah. And you would expect someone like him with the experience that he's had, the reputation that he has uh-huh. to pick up on the weirdness of what is happening in this room. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't. It's just the major. Yeah, it's interesting to me. And this may be one of the things that people didn't like on rewatch. I don't like how he has been paranoid for the first 45 to 60 minutes of this film and interrogating these two men that are trying to basically, you know, he was going to let people die mm-hmm. just because he didn't want them in the carriage with him. Right. Then they get here and he doesn't seem to be questioning a lot until Warren comes in and then they start, you know, taking weapons from people and whatnot. Right. But I was also a little bit annoyed with how Wa- Warren, we see these doubts, but he doesn't speak up in any way to sort of let Kurt Russell know there's something else going on. Eventually we get there, but I was just surprised with how immediately he knew something was up. Why does he wait until after people start dying to say, I know you're lying? I think the premise is he doesn't trust anybody. He's now suspicious of everybody. No one is on his team. No one has ever been on his team. He's the only black man in the room. Yes. And even though Kurt Russell's character has shown himself to be somewhat of an ally he's ultimately not right he's ultimately nobody is ever really gonna you know with their lives Mm -hmm. uh, back him up over somebody else and so i think he is very much playing the game of i am responsible for me and my life and i have to read this room and get to the bottom of it before i show my cards at all and he's kind of testing the waters you can tell yes uh, to figure out how far they're willing to go and, and how committed they are to the lie and how their stories may or may not change. Yeah, we're going to start back referencing, I think, a little more in Tarantino November of the movies that we've already watched. Yeah. And we talked about with Inglorious Bastards how Hans Landa is this detective, but how he likes toying with people. And yeah. he waits, as you said, he doesn't let them know what he knows until mm-hmm. they sort of confirmed it and dug themselves into a deeper hole. Right. So maybe that's the case of this character doing something similar. But unfortunately for him, you know, people, bodies are already on the floor by the time he makes his move. Right, right. But I don't think he's there to protect anybody else. You know what I mean? Yeah. If anything, that could be intentional to eliminate potential threats. It's hey, if there are fewer people in the room, there are a few people I got to keep my eye on. And as long as I'm the one who's still standing while other bodies are dropping, Mm -hmm. then I'm eliminating possible suspects and I'm protecting myself 
Uh, not like Hans Landa, who he like emanates how lethal he is. You can feel it. Yeah. He's kind of a he's kind of a dark horse, you know, in that way. Yeah, I think he's almost like the opposite. Hearing you say that of Hans Landa, notoriously, you know, his nickname, unfortunately, was the Jew Hunter. So he is seeking out people to kill. Whereas at a certain point after the war, Warren is allowing these people to come hunt him on his mountain for the bounty on his head. And he's just killing them off. He's like, Like, yeah, come on. I'll let him come to me. Yeah, I don't got to I don't go chasing (laughs) people around. I don't need to, you know, do that. They can just come for me. And I, you know, and clearly he takes out a lot of his own enemies in that way. Uh And I think that's he's kind of manifesting that here. Yeah, um, and we're get, we're gonna hear more about a specific person who made their way to his mountain in a little bit. But before we get there, I want to touch on the other the other members of the, the Hateful Eight. So we've gotten four out of the way. Now I will say, I I was always curious watching this of well, there's like nine or ten people in this haberdashery. Which ones are the Hateful Eight? Based on the movie poster, it's supposed to be the four people sitting inside the stagecoach mm-hmm. and the four people that are inside the haberdashery when they mm-hmm. arrive. So Obi, mm-hmm. who is the driver of the stagecoach and is kind of the Charlie Brown of this movie like oh, he's I just gonna, he's Charlie a punching Brown. bag yeah like, we need somebody to go outside into the blizzard go ahead ob like every yeah. single time and i love that he's like i'm not fucking going out there again and then they draw straws <laughs> later and it's him again and i was like i thought you weren't going out there ob and you could have just said no and then he's just laying by the fire like almost in Fine. tears like wrapped in a blanket yeah. just leave me alone sort he's of like, and i also love how senor bob who again is as we are going to learn is is not a good guy yes is like do you want some stew, Obi? Like nobody has anything against Obi. Everybody feels a little bad for him. Yes, but yeah. they're also not nice to him either. Yeah. So Obi is the ninth member of the Hateful Eight here. He's sort of the ninth wheel in this whole thing of just this bystander. He doesn't have any real loyalties, and yeah. it's funny that as you he's said, he's just the driver man. He's just the wheel man. Be nice to the wheel man. Yeah. As you said, you know, Senor Bob, played by Damien Bichir, I believe is is his name. You know, he comes over and it's like one of the villains is actually feeling sympathy yeah. for this poor he's guy. He's like, this poor dude is freezing cold. and he hasn't yeah. done anything to anybody. But one of the best characters, I think, another uh, Quentin Tarantino regular is played by Tim Roth. Oswaldo our, Mayberry. Our, our, our Mowbray. Mowbray. Oswaldo oh, Mowbray. I'm sorry, Tim And Roth. oh my God, he is so proper. I love his accent in this. And how different it is from Pulp Fiction where he's got that kind of more, uh, not like, cockney accent but more casual like like, casual working class english Uh accent versus this is like a very proper accent and he's dressed you know very properly and he's also acting as the tour guide to the haberdashery to Uh everybody and kind of making everyone feel really welcome he's like a really outgoing character out of nowhere and you're you know he's gonna play some significant role yeah, he's sort of picking up that that charming ability that we talked about with Inglorious Bastards of sort of, hey, welcome in. Here's where everything mm-hmm. is. I also thought it was interesting that even when he drops the act at points of the film, he's still using his English accent. But as you said, it's more cockney, more slang, more casual. So he's doing a more enhanced English accent yeah. for these American characters to sound less threatening. Well, but it's like, proper... I would hear an English accent of any kind and be like, oh, okay, he's English. You know, what's the threat there? I was, I was born in England. I'm allowed to say that. To me, so I'm like, you could just talk to me all day and, you know, I'd be, <laughs> I'd be into it. Yeah. No, he's very proper when he welcomes them. And it's so funny, too. I can't remember who it is, but somebody asks him his name or confirms his name again and he's like yes he's like very proud of himself he's very he's he's feeling himself is i think what i would say about his whole vibe as he comes in and and kind of throughout that first half there yeah you've got a uh 21 year gap from his appearances in pulp fiction and then here 
in Hateful Eight. I believe he was supposed to be in another Tarantino film between there, but mm. for, for time it got cut, and I think he's in like a deleted scene in one of the oh, other ones oh, in oh. between. But interesting that it's 21 years between his Tarantino appearances here. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, and he and he immediately grills the hangman about his bounty and uh-huh. is like, hey, let me see that, which is kind of funny and ironic given, you know, who we learn that he is down yeah. the road. But he wants to know, make sure that he has the warrant for Daisy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if that's intentional, like an intentional play to, hey, if you don't have the paperwork, then you have to let her go. And maybe this all gets upended. You know, we're going to prevent any level of violence because... You don't have a right to her. You don't have the documentation. Yeah, I thought that was interesting on rewatch. I didn't understand the play there because my thought was, well, if they know that this stagecoach is coming here, they've already killed off everyone in the haberdashery. I didn't understand why they wouldn't just slaughter everyone in the stagecoach when they arrived. I know that they're also armed, but I didn't understand why they would go through the effort to make, you know, business cards that say he's the hangman. But I guess they were trying to get out of there without it being a bloodbath. Right. I think they are. I mean... I think they're gang members, right? But they don't have any particular reason so far, especially because we've got a hodgepodge mix of people in this particular group. They don't know who's going to be in that group. They don't know who's a threat and who isn't. Really, I think the only ones they care about are Daisy and her captor. So, you know, if anybody else is in the crossfire, that's kind of unintentional, or at least it seems like it at first. Like they are trying to kind of get out of there with as little damage as possible. But it's interesting the people they're willing to take out to set this whole thing up, though. So the fact that they yes. care about casualties is odd. Yeah, <laughs> I think that the plan was probably let's try and play it cool first. And also, you know, we've seen that the hangman himself is is a dangerous guy. So yeah. And he's literally handcuffed to the sister. So why get into a shootout where she might get hurt? I guess that's sort of the logic behind it. We've also got Joe Gage, played by Michael Madsen. He's appearing in his fourth Tarantino film. Is there a worse cowboy cover name than Joe Gage? I feel like I could write that when I was like an eight-year-old. Like, Yeah, it's a terrible name. And I love, <laughs> is it the hangman who reacts? Somebody is like, Joe Gage? Really? Joe Gage? <laughs> That's Like, you can hear them live being like, are you serious? This is such a shitty cover name. What are yeah. you talking about? Yeah, I also love how Goggins' character can just hates Joe Gage throughout the entire film. Like, yeah. he distrusts him. And when they've got them up against the wall, he's the first one. He's like, let's kill him first. Yeah. He just despises Joe Gage. I'm okay with that. I do want to say in defense of Joe Gage, okay, he is the only character in the main cast to not say that racial slur. So a little bit of progress. Good for you, Michael Madsen and Joe Gage, you know, name aside. I literally have that in my notes at the beginning of this movie. I was like, we can't not say the N word, can we? We just (laughs) got to put it everywhere. And I didn't uh, notice that he was the only one who didn't say it, but I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. And then the last one we've got who rounds out the the eight pack is General Sandy Smithers, played by Bruce Dern. who if I do love one piece of the mystery about this film and how it plays out it's that when they arrive they point out the folks in the coach point out you know at least one person here is lying one of you is working with this woman it might be one of you it might be two you might be three you might be four of you but the fact that this old civil war veteran from the south is not part of the original pack that takes over the haberdashery and is just sort of another bystander. They're not a good person by any means, but I enjoy that he is kind of a wild card in how his story plays out. Yeah, I like that you don't... You know that he's a racist bastard, but you don't know much else about him. And he kind of quietly... 
uh, sits there and lets you wonder. And you learn later, of course, that that's intentional. He was told to say very little. And yep. and so that's, that's the thing that you notice about him once you see the end, once you see what he's been told. You're like, oh, now it's all kind of coming together. So we kind of have all of our, our eight. A bunch of them are really interesting characters and, and how they interact and kind of settle. That door is super fucking absurd and obnoxious, but becomes <laughs> relevant later. Yes. And so, you know, they start to have these conversations and then oswald is kind of again trying to play peacemaker right and he's like hey let's just split the room <laughs> let's segregate mm-hmm. things shall we and then you see that john and the major have this relatively clear alliance mm-hmm. until brrr, we learn that the lincoln letter is a lie yes so in memory of my incredible coffee mug gift here about <laughs> abraham lincoln yeah we find out that this letter that we saw way back in chapter one that Kurt Russell's character was basically in tears over over. of just, wow, that's so cool that Abraham Lincoln would take the time to write you a letter. What a great president. And uh, yeah, go ahead and tell him what happens now. Well, Chris Mannix is like, this is a crock of shit. He's like the president and he's a rebel. So we've established that he doesn't have a lot of respect for, you know, the Yankees, but he's like the president of the fucking United States of America wrote not just wrote one letter or acknowledged this man had correspondence with this black guy Mm -hmm. this random major in the army are you fucking kidding me and he calls it out for what it is in front of everyone of that's a crock of shit like any of you who believe this are gullible as hell and the hangman is like wait what Uh he's completely taken aback like he isn't he isn't allowed for this possibility yes and i think that's again kind of He's a little bit more gullible than you think he is. Mm-hmm. You don't re- like realize he's going to be that gullible until that happens, and he definitely is. Yeah, I think there's a difference between being insightful and sort of reading situations, which you think is what he's doing at the beginning of like, this seems off, and him just being paranoid. Yeah. I think he's paranoid at the beginning, and he's then we paranoid. learn he's not as good of a judge of character as right. he thinks he is. And what I do like about this scene of the discussion of the letter is how quickly Warren owns it. You know, he yeah. says, what's going to make white people trust me? Right. You it's going to disarm them, if nothing mm-hmm. else. It's going to make them question things, if nothing, even if they're skeptical. Like, he has this letter that looks relatively, you know, legit and, you know, has a Mary Todd reference in it and all yes. these things. So he can at least make them consider, what if that is real? And he says, he's like, what do you think? I, I have to protect myself. Uh-huh. I am never safe around white people. This this is the wep- one of the weapons that I have. Yeah, and he specifically says, "Got me on your stage, coach, didn't it?" Yeah, you know, would like, I have you gotten picked up if you didn't know this 100%. about me? A hundred percent. He's so. like, you know, I would be still be out there in the slow. Yeah. But I, I, I had the, the in my notes it says John and Major Alliance. Ah, and then it says John and Major break up. <laughs> <Aww. laughs> that was my literal reaction. Yeah. So <sighs> from there, I thought it was interesting. So we've had this sort of initial. I'm not sure how long it goes on for, but this initial getting to know all the characters in this haberdashery and who do we trust and who do we not, we see suspicions raised. Then we get to this conversation about the letter and that sets off a chain of events because immediately after that, and I thought this was, again, Tarantino characters, man, they are not perfect, even the ones we love. Right. And the fact that Warren so quickly deflects and is like, you know what, you just made me feel bad and outed me to all these people about the Lincoln thing. I'm going to go fuck with this old racist. Yeah. And that instigates everything else and that happens. And then all the dominoes fall, you know? But I think what's interesting about that, essentially, Warren is goading this old racist guy who has yes. been instructed, basically, not to talk. 
about his son who he is truly going to visit his grave or his marker it's not his real grave because he doesn't know where he's buried and he's basically saying hey I'm the one who killed your son and not only did I do it at all I did it in this incredibly disrespectful shameful torturous way yes not only just shameful and cowardly but sexual shame as well and so it's really really triggering to this man and he keeps his cool for the most part for the most part and it's uh, how much of the story is true and how much of it is him because they basically say look you you might hate this guy and he's calling you all these terrible things but if you shoot him in cold blood here you're gonna also get hung in red rock so he has to get him to raise up on him him there and he you know might be exaggerating i hope that he's exaggerating this story but he's going into great detail and eventually the guy is triggered so much that he lifts up the gun and gets shot Right. And I think that that's the that's the core that I think you are never left with an answer. Right. Chris Maddox is the only one reading the room, which is, I think, kind of an interesting thing for him as a character. You start to observe that he has his eyes on more things than you think he does. Uh And he's paying very close attention. And again, he called out Warren a little bit ago. And here he is saying, like, this story is not true. He's just trying to get you to pick up that gun. Like, pay attention to me. Do not get into this fight with him. But I think that's the key question of how much is that story true? How much of it or at all? And how much of it is it that this guy just wants to kill this old rebel general? Right. And he wants an excuse to do it. Yes. So during that scene, I did want to call out one of my favorite parts of that scene is Senior Bob trying to play the piano. Oh, my God. I know. <laughs> just I have that up. note, too. I was like, really, little, dude? His mumbles to himself <laughs> every time he fucks up. And he's just like, oh, man. Like, he's so disappointed in himself. And he's trying to show everybody a good time. He gets like so eight, no, eight notes in, messes up. <laughs> and I'm so, like, don't you have better things to be doing? And then we transition from that musical scene to another musical scene because then we get Daisy Domergue playing the guitar and we get to hear Jennifer Jason Lee singing a little bit. So any thoughts on that scene itself? I think that that song is a really lovely song and it's very well placed. And I think I have a lot of notes actually in here throughout the the film of their use of music and when, not including just the score, which is of course a beautiful score done by Ennio Morricone, who mm-hmm. won the Oscar for best original yes. score for this, which is not and his surprising. first Oscar win. Right. But he yeah. was nominated like five times. Yeah. And it's that's crazy. the first one he won. A couple interesting call outs from that is that obviously, I again, not a huge Western fan, but I do know that he scored The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Mm-hmm. He did a, a Fistful of Dollars. I mean, he scored numerous He's films over his career. Stuff, yeah. Unfortunately, passed away a few years ago. This was his first Oscar win. And some of the music in this is actually remaining score that he didn't use on another film he did called The Thing with Kurt Russell back in 1982. I think I did know that. Yeah, so old horror movie. Another one that is set in a desolate winter wasteland. He's like, this is a similar vibe. I can reuse this. (laughs) And I'm wondering which parts were. I'm sure I could look it up and find out. But my guess would be that scene where they're driving the stakes into the ground and threading the line out to the barn and to the outhouse. That's a direct mirror of a scene that happens in the thing. And Mm -hmm. it does sound a little different from the rest of the score in this. So I'm wondering if that's not part of it. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it does. Again, like you said, it's a very similar environment, similar vibe. So it makes a lot of sense. But his score aside, is incredible but when they do choose to use other music i think it's very well done this song included this song is lovely if really sad if you read the lyrics it's very interesting but it is also very timely it's very apropos of what's happening and she's talking about you know being dragged in chains and she gets the part Mm -hmm. where i'll kill you bastards is very well timed with them grabbing the coffee and drinking the coffee and she knows that it's poisoned she saw it happen she's a part of this ultimately Uh and and i think it speaks to how diabolical 
she really is, you know? Yeah, she, you almost see her hesitate before that last verse where she does talk about, I'm going to kill you. She turns, sees them drinking the coffee, and then goes into that verse that she also knows is going to trigger John Ruth to be a little pissed off because of what it's insinuating. And then we get this scene that I think Mm -hmm. most people know about, a little bit of this movie trivia of a real-life $40,000 artifact. $40,000 guitar. Guitar from the 1860s, I believe, getting smashed Smashed by Kurt Russell, who had no idea that it was the actual thing and not the, the, the stage prop. I know. And like the fact that nobody reacted to. And yeah. so she sang this live as the other thing on mm-hmm. the set, which is really cool, which is it, it, it may not stand out to a lot of folks, but really stage recording singing is pretty rare. There's only a few yeah. few movies that have done that in that way. So she does it live and takes it clean. And then, yeah, he grabs the guitar and he smashes it. I mean, they left the the take in there because it is a one shot. So you do get that whole thing of him going and taking the guitar while she's still singing and, yeah. and smashing it. So they were like, well, it's a $40,000 shot. Reacted. Like, it. how could you on yeah. the other side of that camera, like DP, directors, etc. How would you not like scream out? Just I feel like my reaction would <laughs> not be able to be contained. But I, I mean, from a production standpoint, very impressed with their ability to finish the scene. Yes. And then go cry later. Yeah. I mean, Jennifer Jason <laughs> Lee does like... Like, oh, wait, no, stop. And I don't know how much of that's her and how much of that is the character. Right, <laughs> but, right. Yeah. Interesting. Right sure. after that is when we see the, the effects of the coffee, the poison in the coffee taking mm-hmm. place. And we should have mentioned this chapter is called Domergu's Got a Secret. And that is that the coffee has been poisoned. Yeah. So she's this aware of all this. secret. And it starts to literally explode all over the floor. And she and is, her of face. course so satisfied you know the one of my favorite shots in this entire film is kurt russell realizing he's dying and beating her again and her laughing just maniacally as he's throwing up blood on her face and she just continues laughing that is such an incredible shot and a great performance she again just commits to the crazy yeah i think you can't get around that she commits to the crazy so that graphic blood vomiting reveal is sort of what leads us into what I would consider to be sort of the climax of the film, or at least, you know, uh, yeah. majority of the climax of the film. And we get sort of Sam Jackson, his character, realizing what's going on. Yeah. Of, okay, somebody poisoned the coffee. Let's sort out who it was. Only himself and Mannix are armed at this moment. Right. So that sort of puts them on the offensive of working their way through it. So we get a little bit of the detective work that I think should have come earlier. Right. Major Warren. (laughs) Kurt Russell would still be alive. Right. We could have called some of this out earlier. We didn't have to wait this long for sure. But playing those cards real close to the vest. But but yeah, that doesn't work out for him because then he gets shot in the pelotas. Yeah, which is the, uh, this is the third straight film of Tarantino's that we've discussed where somebody's gotten shot in the balls. Because I guess that's the new hallmark. He's like trunk (laughs) shots, ball gunshots. These are going to be my new signatures. Yeah, I don't know. He's into it for sure. And it looks like it hurts like hell, obviously. Yes. Were you okay? Were you okay after, did you have to pause and leave the room? I think I get a worse reaction, like an actual gut reaction, if you're watching like skateboarding vids and somebody falls oh, on a really? pulse. Well, I think that hurts me worse than watching this, honestly, because I can like, at least imagine what the other one is right, like. This right. one, it seems too far beyond my comprehension. So after that, I mean, we get a death, unfortunately, RIP and peace, Senior Bob. Uh, Senior he's the Bob. one person they knew they could not trust there, so he had to go. And then we get our flashback chapter, which is called yeah. Four Passengers. Four Passengers. Earlier that morning. Mm-hmm. Earlier that same morning. So you just get the whole thing from the other angle. You understand who has come in on the prior stage coach. Yep. 
and that it's you know the gang it's jody's gang i don't what's his last name is not domergue it's something it's else. interesting because it's i Daddy's guess daisy something? found a man that she loved and they got married or something or unless it's a cover but yeah it's jody domingre jody domingre that's right jody domingre's gang comes in and they are prepping for her to come to the haberdashery and them to be able to free her is really this whole premise yeah. and they are not in there for what three to five minutes before they're just taking everybody out and these are very innocent bystanders collateral damage bystanders who have nothing to do with this and to me not any more or less of a threat than the general guy they keep the general because he looks like a prop yeah he looks authentic he gives he He livens up the place a little bit i I wrote down i think these are the most innocent characters in any tarantino film they all seem like generally nice people and it was almost it was very scary to see the Domingue gang come into this bar and the way that they split up yeah. is like i'm gonna kill these people you're yep. gonna kill this person and they sort of pair off and it's almost unspoken i mean yeah. not, uh, almost. there's a little a it's few unspoken, nods of you know? like yeah you ready there's you ready okay a, let's shoot mm-hmm, these folks mm-hmm. it's it's pretty scary yeah and it speaks to how lethal and coordinated they are that they can walk into kind of an unknown scene and mm-hmm. operate so effectively and dangerously efficiently and yeah just kind of take everybody out right away but you hear jody say he's the leader of the gang obviously yeah. but he's also trying to be i don't know relatively reasonable about it and direct everyone accordingly and and tell them to be patient yes. when everyone gets there yep. and that there's going to be a right time to make the play. Yeah. So I assume that's, I'm, I'm going to backtrack a little bit to when we were asking what the logic was. And there's your logic right there oh. is Jody saying they got to sleep sometime. They're going to be here for two days. Yeah. That's when you strike. So that is why they are playing it so cool and not just jumping out guns right. blazing. We also get a lot of the the little bit of foreshadowing there is in this film. We do see like a close up of a jelly bean on the floor mm-hmm. early in the mm-hmm. film. We do get a little bit of the payoff there, the broken right. door. And the one thing that I want to call out specifically upon rewatch, which is why I say if you, if you didn't love this the first time through, watch it again. Watch it again. Yeah. Because there are little hints such as as soon as the hangman and Daisy walk into the haberdashery, Daisy sees all the folks. She's pretty happy to see them. Yep. And she starts speaking very loudly about the situation of saying, oh, the new sheriff is with us. Oh, yeah. there's other people. And then Oswaldo repeats her very loudly yeah. so that Jody in the basement can hear it. So right. they are feeding information to him down there. Yeah, it's very intentional. And you see a shift in her. And I think you don't know who all is with her, but you know somebody is. Yes. Even if you're not capturing everything, you know somebody is because she is, she's pretty giddy almost to be there and she's not great at hiding that you know she's kind of smirky and giddy throughout to be fair she was flirting with freaking warren in the in the wagon but she she seems more happy to be there than you would expect for somebody who is a prisoner you are suspicious as soon as they come in because of that and you really feel for these people who yeah. are relatively innocent including that one guy who was like i just started working here this morning this poor man is like, really? I'm all- First day of work, I'm already getting shot. Like, what the hell? <laughs> and what's fun is I want... Um, that's a terrible transition. You know what's fun? You know what's uh, fun? Uh, not spinning off of, you know, poor innocent people getting killed. But fun about this is in this one chapter, aside from the fact that Channing Tatum has appeared, you know, briefly for two seconds before this, we get three of the best cameos in the film. So you get Channing Tatum, who mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you want to call him a cameo. It's a small part. But God, has he come along with... You know what his first acting credit was, aside from a couple of, like, commercial for soda companies 
like step up is the first thing I can think of. So I guess technically it's not an acting credit, but his first appearance was actually in the music video for She Bangs by Ricky Martin. So he has like two very small <laughs> Well, he is an incredible dancer. That's and what I was again, called, his yeah. first actual acting role, I think, is step up and he's dancing for 80% of it. And I put in my notes, like, good for him, dude, because yeah. he traditionally has played either characters that are very likable, very funny, or can dance. But right. Aside from like the G.I. Joe movies, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And now he's playing this sort of, he's the, probably the most despicable, hated character that right. he could play in this scenario. So I also want to shout out Zoe Bell, who yeah. plays the driver of the other stagecoach. Mm-hmm. And she actually, fun fact, has the most Tarantino film appearances of any actor or actress. Now, granted, most of it is in stunt work, but mm. she is one of the main characters in Death Proof. She has a little appearance here. Yeah. But when you think about, oh, Sam Jackson's always in them. Tim Roth is always in them. Zoe Bell actually has the most appearances in Tarantino wow. films. Wow, stealing the show, Zoe. Right. Love it. The last one that I would mention would be Tarantino himself because he's got to put himself in his he's movies somewhere. He's got to put himself in there. He's got to narrate. He, he's comfortable just narrating this time. So um, he doesn't have to put himself on screen, but we're going to hear his voice for a little bit. His voice even sounds a little different too. So I think you it takes you a split second. To, I mean, not long, but it takes you a second to be like, oh yeah, that is him. He sounds, uh, I don't know, a little bit cleaner, I guess, than his usual drawl. I don't know. And I, it takes you a second to register that it's him. But I think that's a good thing because it doesn't really take you out of it. Daisy and Jody, as soon as they see each other, you can just like feel that bro and sister love like she is so excited to see him he's so happy to see her it's like the one i think sweet moment yes and then boom boom. so in my notes i have hi channing by channing hi channing by channing (laughs) exactly she's excited to see him and then brain all over her face yeah i i like that cute little moment that they do get they do they call each other cute little insults like hey it's like dummy hey dummy yeah you know bro bro sis bro sis But so we've moved now into the final chapter, which is called Black Man, White Hell, where we get Channing killed right off the bat. Our two, I guess, good guys are wounded at this point. Yeah. And then you've got the bad guys still there, but you're not sure are they all bad yet? And, you know, what the scenario is. This is it's a hurtful thing to say, but this might be the least interesting part of the movie for me. Like once shit starts hitting the fan, as opposed to most where the payoff is this moment. Once we figured out who everyone is yeah. and it just starts becoming a, not generic, but there's just shootouts going on, that becomes not as fun for me. It really right. doesn't get interesting again until it's down to just Mannix, Warren, and Domergu. And we're yeah. tra- and Mannix is in between trying to decide which side he's going to fall. Yeah, I think it's pretty easy to sum this bit up, to be honest. You yeah. see people continue to do the things that they were doing, right? Yep. So Marco has died, and they talk about how he's got a price on his head pretty high, 13 or 15K or something like that. And Oswaldo is still trying to play Peacemaker. He's mm-hmm. like, listen, take his body, and then listen, I'm probably going to die. Take my body and let them go, you know? And so they're still trying to make a deal. He's, he's still trying to be logical. And you see all of them, again, just kind of behave in the ways that you expect. Uh, Grouch Douglas, you know, uh, Michael Madsen's actual real character name, uh, tries to make a move for the gun, doesn't do a great job of it, gets shot. And she just continues to be kind of a devolving crazy mess that you sort of expect her to be. So I agree. It's not super interesting until it's just the three of them. And they kind of have her at odds. There's a, a moment, of course, of she gets the mach- gets to the machete she cuts the arm off <laughs> yep. it's gory as fuck yeah but you also at least for me i don't know i don't i don't expect it to succeed 
Yeah, I mean, you get the scene with Mannix kind of passing out and Warren is unable to walk. Yeah. So it's this slow, steady crawl for the gun to see how this is going to play out. And then we, we see the final sort of shootout and then them making the decision ultimately to hang her. They know they're all, none of them are getting out of this this place alive. So fuck yeah. it. Let's do what we came here to do. And I think it's nice that they, as nice as this can be, right, that they want to honor the hangman, a.k.a. John Ruth, yeah. by hanging her because that was something that was important to him. But I think it's also a callback to what Oswaldo says earlier, which I love this this quote that he says where he's like, the man who pulls the lever that breaks your neck will be a dispassionate man. Mm-hmm. And that dispassion is the very essence of justice. For justice delivered without dispassion is always in danger of not being justice. And they decide that they're going to deliver this justice via the way that the hangman would want. But it's not without it's the passion. Most passionate. It's the most passionate way that they could have hung this person. And I just think that's very intentional and a, and a really riveting yeah. kind of callback in that moment to me. Again, it's it's the laughter of dying men. These guys are on their way out. This, yeah. this woman has essentially and her gang have gotten them both killed. So screw it. Let's let's laugh at her, see her die first, and we'll be following shortly thereafter. I love the little final comedic touch of having the Lincoln letter come yeah. back into play for the finale. It ha- I think it kind of had to in a way. I, it's just been such a theme throughout, like literally yeah. from the beginning of the film to yeah. end the film made a lot of sense. It's funny to me that he sort of starts awake. And it's like, I got to read this before I die. It's almost (laughs) like it's keeping him alive, you know? And so he reads it. He reads the whole thing to us. We haven't read the whole thing yet. So it's nice to hear the whole letter. And I love that he's like, oh, Mary Todd. That's a nice touch. (laughs) Yeah. And then what does he do? He crumples it up. And he crumples it. Throws it it away, covered in blood. And I'm sure there's a message there of what we've been talking about, identity and who's trustworthy and who's telling the truth, all these different things. Probably there's a message there. And I think it's an interesting way to end the story on kind of this false note of this is the thing that has been established as being untrue the entire time. And weirdly, uh, it's kind of the two least likely allies that are dying together really on the same side. Yes. Um, So it's really interesting. I think the making of strange bedfellows, right, Mm -hmm. of now all of a sudden they're friends in a way that you didn't anticipate definitely at the top. And then we close out with Roy Orbison taking us home with uh, (laughs) there won't be many coming home. And again, the use of music. I was like, well, that is also apropos. So I thought it was a really interesting, interesting, solid ending. Nice. So that's pretty much the film in a a 60 something minute nutshell. I did the only thing from my notes that I wanted to touch on because I wasn't sure when I wanted to do this throughout the the Tarantino November, but we're running out of time. So I want to call out his use of the fake brand of Red Apple cigarettes. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. those get everywhere mentioned in almost every single film. Whenever somebody's smoking, it's Red Apple cigarettes. I'll put it in here because I think it's funny that in this one, it's Red Apple tobacco that they're using to roll cigarettes because of the time. And then it also gets mentioned by Senior Bob as Manzanas Rojas. Yes. So it's like we get the Spanish interpretation (laughs) of this fake brand too. So that's a fun thing to look out for in Tarantino films. I think so too. I think the the last little nugget we want to share about this one is that it almost didn't happen. 
And yeah. I love this movie. We've talked about how it's the, the least well-received of his films. I have never really understood that. I, again, I think it comes down to just the, some of the racism, the violence against women. Those are, those are really hard things to watch in general, so I get that to some degree. I also think it's a very writing-heavy film, even for Quentin Tarantino, who is, of course, a great screenwriter. But there's, there's less action for big chunks of time. So I get why it's not always well-received. But it was so well-written that it saved the making of this film because it, yes. it did actually leak as as you probably know mm -hmm. so it did actually leak before they started production yep. and as a result tarantino didn't want to make the movie yeah he sued gawker and basically mm -hmm. said i'm not making this as a film i'll write it as a novel instead right i'm not going to make it um but they did a table read and mm -hmm. and actually the cast loved it so much and and samuel l jackson went to tarantino and and said you got to make this movie man and talked him into it and i personally am thankful that he did because I think this is a really, to me, a, a, not only a Tarantino classic, but I think it really is a a modern retake on the Western genre that yes. feels very legitimate, uh -huh. but a but a new telling of it that's not trying to do something that every other Western before has done. That's a great call out because it's Western characters in a not traditional Western exactly. setting. It's like we don't need to have the showdown at Sunset yeah. Ranch, you know, like shootout. Yeah, kind no of OK stuff. Corral is... shootout, no train robbery, no. But you look at human, Kurt you know. Russell's character, and he is a he's a classic he's pulled Western. right out of a classic Western. So yeah. I hear you on that. The only other note I would make about the script itself is that this was originally intended to be a sequel to Django. Yeah. When Tarantino yeah. first started writing it, he had Sam Jackson's character as Jamie Foxx's character, Django. Right. But then he realized that made it a little harder to keep the script cohesive when you're writing around right. an, a pre-existing character. Mm -hmm. So instead, he replaced it with the Warren character when we got the movie that we got. Yeah, which I think was the move, honestly. He has one major pairing, Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2, that is kind of a sequel, but everything else is relatively siloed, and they're telling some really different stories. So I, I think it makes sense to keep it separate, and I'm glad that he did. So, And again, I'm glad that he got it made. Yeah. Also, that it was released in 70 millimeter. And I was going to ask you, did you ever see it? In 70 millimeter i see i never can tell i feel really bad saying that but <laughs> you are the true cinephile here i honestly never know the difference well you can't see it you can't tell the difference unless you see it in the theater the right okay. theater so okay. so when he um when they released it only about a hundred ish theaters were even retrofitted to show it in huh. 70 millimeter and there were there was actually a lot of contention certain people like couldn't get the contract to do it and all that so a lot of people haven't seen it in 70 millimeter myself included i haven't do you seen know it. if the regal theater off washburn avenue has 70 <laughs> millimeter because in that case yes no, i'm just kidding <laughs> So my guess is no, no, you would, I think you would be able to tell is yeah. I think what I would say. I've seen, I've, I have seen other like 50 and 70 millimeter films mm -hmm. that are done and you can tell the difference, but it does have to call that out on the showing and it, it is pretty rare, but I hadn't seen it. So I was curious if you had. Okay. Very cool. All right, Mackenzie. So we've been talking about this for over an hour now. What are you going to end up rating the hateful eight? This is hard. Cause again, I hearken back to, I don't give anything a 10. Uh, so I don't want to be, again, I'm going to be we the, know, I'm going to be the, be the mean phrase. judge. Is this the, wait, did we determine this is the Russian judge? The Russian judge is the mean one? Yeah. The Russian judge, I think is traditionally the mean one. is okay. the mean one. No offense, Okay. Sorry, Russia. Russia, but I'm also the mean judge. Uh, so I can't give it a 10, but I love this movie. I love the screenwriting of this movie, as I've mentioned a couple of times. I think it's a really good story and it's something that doesn't rely on like the flashbang of it all. And I, and I love that about mm -hmm. it. So I would say like an eight and a half or a nine in that range for me. So it, 
am I misremembering? Is this a higher rated film than both Pulp Fiction and Inglorious for you? Gosh, I can't remember what I gave Pulp Fiction, to be honest, but I do think it's higher than Inglorious because I think I said nine. Or no, I said eight. I think I said eight for Inglorious. I might be misremembering. I think you might I think you might have given Inglorious. I think I gave a wide range, because here's the thing. I don't know if this is a Russian judge thing, but I was I was like, I, it's an eight or a nine for me. I don't know which one it is. It's in that range. You are revolutionizing <laughs> the judiciary system of I'm just gonna pick two numbers and then we'll figure it out later. You know, that's great. That's, this is how I'm gonna be nice. I'm gonna be the one who's like, maybe it's a nine. <laughs> I'm not gonna commit to nine, but maybe okay. a nine. What do you think? So so I guess numbers aside, you would say that Hateful Eight is your most favorite of the three that we've seen so far? Hmm. You know what? Maybe so. Maybe. I, it's it's I'm actually, actually hard for me to pick between Hateful Eight and Inglorious Bastards. I, I will say. Mm-hmm. I, I Those are, I yeah. think those are the contenders for me. Uh, but I will say again, I, I think it just comes back to the writing for me and it being like, I don't know, maybe this is being not only a film nerd, but like an English nerd. I really respect the writing of this one in particular. So I think mm-hmm. that's maybe what, what pulled it ahead a little bit for me. But when I think about enjoyability of watching the movie itself, uh, yeah, that's really hard. That's very neck and neck for me and glorious bastards and hateful eight, I will say, but man, killing Nazis, like that's really fun to watch. Like we said, <laughs> That's going to be the deciding yeah, factor. Maybe the killing the Nazis, you know, might have to win out in the end, yeah. to be honest. What about you? Yeah. So, so for me, I can't, I can't say this is probably my least favorite of the three we've watched, but here's the main thing is I want to reiterate that if you've only ever seen Hateful Eight once, you should watch it again. You don't need to watch it eight times, just a second time, because I think knowing what's going to happen you pick up on it, it unleashes a little bit of the tension. You're past that thing I talked about where you feel like you're watching a mystery that you can't really mm-hmm. solve the first mm-hmm. time you see it. And I think that frustration goes away when you know what's happening. So I will say on second watch, it was mm. better. But one of the worst things that I hate in cinema is somebody telling me, oh, you need to watch it a second time. Oh. To so I, I sympathize here. So I totally get where people are coming from. If I'm going based off just a first watch, I'd probably give it like a seven and a half probably a seven and a half that sounds mm. about right upon second watch i would raise it up to like an eight okay. eight and a half but it's definitely my least favorite of the three that we've hmm. watched so far interesting interesting i it's funny you say that about not wanting to be told to go watch it twice because i have done that yeah. with a lot of movies like as you're saying that i'm realizing i'm guilty of being like no go watch it again <laughs> Yeah, there's some like, you know, The Prestige is a film that I love. And that one I loved the first time. But on rewatch, you pick up on everything and you love it more. This is one where the first time through, I was like, what the fuck? I couldn't have guessed <laughs> this. And then you watch it back and you're like, OK, there's yeah. all these clues. Not still you wouldn't be able to guess it, but it does help you appreciate it just a bit. more. Yeah, I think so. I think there are definitely some that are better on rewatch. But you, I agree with your point generally of you shouldn't have to rewatch something to enjoy it at all, for sure. Mm-hmm. So. Yes. I'm looking at you, Donnie Darko oh. fans. I watched that damn movie like three times in college and it never I got any better. It did get for better me, for so. me. We should do an episode on that. I don't understand. Let's bring a Donnie right. Darko fan on the pod because I we have questions. <laughs> anyway. Explain time travel to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think that we've pretty much covered everything we can about the hateful eight and why it's such a divisive film. 
Yeah, so come come back to us in the comments. I want to know, like, what do you think about this film? Again, I loved it. I loved it from the first watch. I thought it was really enjoyable. Rewatch again. Uh, want to know your thoughts before we before we come back next week. So uh, so we'll post this on the socials with our beautiful mugs for you to check out. But you know, thanks for joining us again, and come back again for week four, where we'll talk about either either War Dogs or Kill Bill. The last suggestion I have for this movie is instead of calling it the Hateful Eight, because we were talking about movie titles at the beginning, mm -hmm. they should have called it the Hatful Eight, because they're all wearing <laughs> hats. You're laughing a lot harder than I thought you would at that. But it should have been the hat. I, I just think that's a missed opportunity. I'm Lots a sucker for a real shitty joke. And uh, just so well, you know, that was a real bad one. Thank you. <laughs> so yeah, hit us On up. On that note, guys, <laughs> go now, have a drink, and uh, watch a thing. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.